Hey guys, welcome to Right Way, a podcast where we give you insight to make informed decisions about your writing career. I'm your host, Rhea Fry, multi-published author and CEO and founder of Right Way. And I'm Joe Tower, writer, media producer, and Right Way's executive editor. On this podcast, Rhea and I will take an inside look at the publishing industry with honest and straightforward shop talk. So when you do get published, you'll know exactly what to do the right way. This is a Soul Fire production. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Right Way Podcast. We are going to dive pretty much straight in today because we have so much information to cover, but we are talking, (laughs) very dense today, but we are talking about how to write a best-selling novel. And I don't know a single writer out there who isn't just so interested in this topic. They want to know how to do it. They want to know how to hit lists. They want to know how to sell millions of copies and live happily ever after. Um, <laughs> ah! Yeah, which as we all know is... A pox does, on my house. Does not um, happen just because you become a bestseller. Absolutely. And Rhea and I were just talking about this before we picked up our microphones that, um, you know, this is, we want to make sure that we are totally transparent um, and we want you guys to have all of the information. Uh, I think we want to be careful uh, because right way, like we're not saying that we don't want to condone, because uh, this is a question we get from a lot of clients. We don't want to condone you guys going out and trying to write a bestseller. This is not what we're saying. We're going to give a lot of great uh, input, a lot of great bullet points today. But um, I just just focus on writing a great book, guys. Like just you know, um, don't and don't take this as some kind of like gospel where if you check off you know each point, it's going to equal a bestseller. It's not an equation. But um, uh, that being said, this is. Uh, this this episode is going to be directed at at all of the components that sort of go into uh, making a bestseller and uh, ways that you can maybe cheat the system also. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. And it's a little bit different for, for fiction and nonfiction, but I think we need to start with just what a bestseller even is because it's yeah. really changed over time. So at first, like back in the day, all it meant to be a bestseller was selling better than most other books on the market. So, yeah. you know, and as we see now, like that's really changed. And when we were doing our research for this show, we were kind of pulling different, you know, stats and data from different areas. And it's very interesting when you think about a New York Times bestselling novel. So that means, you know, that that book has likely sold around 7,000 copies in its first week of publication but that that author could sell 7,000 copies that first week and never sell another copy ever. And they would still be known as a New York Times bestselling novel. Whereas other books, kind of like the long game books, can sell hundreds of thousands of copies over their lifetime and they will never be considered a bestseller, which seems That's so insane. unfair. And I mean, you know, I know, again, so many authors who cumulatively have sold 50,000 books, 60,000 books, 100,000 books, but they didn't do it in that condensed period of time. So therefore, they're not considered a bestseller. And it's it's really, I don't know, it can be very detrimental um, to an author's confidence <laughs> and to... Yeah, a bit of a trap, right? A bit of a trap. Completely. Because, uh, because and, you know, what came up uh, again and again as, as Rhea and I were doing the research is that... 
because it's evolved over time, because the connotations of the term bestseller has evolved over time, because of uh, the way the publishing market has shifted now, it's it's sort of a re- it's a really elusive term bestseller. So mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of nobody really knows what it means. And as Rhea pointed out, like it could mean like definitively it could mean a very different thing than what it means like culturally. Yeah. At this point. And, and, you know, I'll use myself as an example. So yes, I'm considered a best-selling author. So my book has hit number one in categories on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I've been a Target bestseller. I've been an Apple Books list bestseller. I've been bestsellers in like different places and categories. But today, unless your book hits one of the major lists, so Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times, or Publishers Weekly, you can't put that on your book cover. And I've talked to my team extensively about this because I'm like, well, but technically I'm a best-selling author. Like I have sold, I've been number one, you know, in these categories, I've been a local bestseller, you know, all of those little things. And it's like, none of those matter. You're, they're just swept under the rug unless you hit a list which again, we've tried twice where I first have paid money out of my own pocket to do those book bub deals, which is a down price on your book. We did it for Not Her Daughter. We sold about 8,000 copies in a limited amount of time. And I was like, shit, I'm going to hit the USA Today list, which is the list that I actually really care about because it it is about how many books you sell. But for some reason, we didn't hit that list. And then we did it again with Because Your Mind sold, I think only like a couple thousand copies in a day, but that wasn't enough to hit it. So it can feel like banging your head into a wall where, you know, it's like, oh my God, unless I hit a list, like it doesn't matter that I've sold, you know, 60,000 copies, 100,000 copies, uh, because I don't have that list title, you know, I I suck. I mean, basically that's what Well, think about think like. about how pace and pace and reach have changed because of the digital world. Oh my gosh, I mean, because yes. we're talking about when we talk about Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, you know, New York Times, we're talking about week like lists that sort of like weekly. the metrics change yes, weekly, weekly, right? Yep. Um, there are monthly lists, but like no one really gives a shit. Nope. Um, for the most part, but you know, we've, you know, we've, the, the, the odd discovery is like the sort of like Amazon. Oh trend. yeah. Completely. Um, Cause the idea of like an Amazon bestseller, this is a list that, that updates with metrics that update hourly. hourly. So you could be an Amazon yep. bestseller. If you yep. can move, there you go. Like <laughs> yeah. move a bunch of copies from four to five, but after five thirty, yep. you might not be on the list anymore. Well, exactly. And I mean, that's how quickly it changes. Exactly. And, and, and in a specific category. Category. So you can be number one and get this little like orange flag, like number one, you know, bestseller in suspense or in yeah. historical fiction. And I've taken screenshots of those because I'm like, oh my God, like this is probably the only time I'm going to see this. And then, yeah, it disappears, you know, an hour, two hours, three it's hours crazy. later. But it, it's crazy. And it's like, I mean, it's so indicative of, of the way that the world moves and the pace of the world because you hit that moment. It's actually a really cool moment. And then boom, it's gone. And it's like, it yeah. doesn't even matter. So Not, nine days, nine days is what uh, Martin Luther King said the span of attention is in America. Uh, nine days, <laughs> nine things? seconds. Yeah, yeah. Well, like he's talking about like, you know, like social movements. Sure. We really are only aware of it for nine days. So, you know, imagine a book. Yeah, <laughs> like it's exactly. Just, it's there and it's gone. And, and just as a reminder, we've said this before on this podcast, but it's such a grim statistic, but also should make you feel better about yourself and your books. But on average, 
a book will sell no more. It used to be 3,000 copies in its lifetime, but I think the updated um, number is 2,000 copies in its lifetime and around 250 copies its first year. So Jesus. if you're above and beyond that, like, you know, pat yourself on the back. It's not easy to get someone yeah. to to buy a book. And we put so much pressure on ourselves. Um, so it's good to actually know the numbers and know what you're up against and what's normal and what's expected of you. And it, And it's important to talk about this because, you know, in trying to define... Uh, like what a bestseller means, first of all, to the marketplace, second of all, to the consumer base, you know, third of all, to us, you know, the writers and, and, and the publishing industry. Uh, this, is, this is an opportunity for you to sort of define what a bestseller means to you because, you know, I, I know that we're all obviously like chasing the, the sort of, you know, that like, we want to be the top of the list at the moment. We want to be the sought after thing. But like, I remember, um, <laughs> Dennis Lehane, um, uh, I was at a, um, a Q and a with De- uh, for Dennis Lehane. And he was saying, uh, talking about the, the, the advent of, of keeping your, the book order small, um, oh, yeah. and how, yeah. and how he, uh, how, he, you know, the, the sort of, you know, um, that green, like that, uh, the carrot, the dangling carrot of like taking a big print run yep. um, and being like, oh, I'm fucking huge. And then not being able to like sell your print run. Whereas, Absolutely. you know, for uh, for his first few books, he would take a really small print run, sell all the cop, like sell out, go into a reprint, go oh, into a second reprint, yeah. you know, like th- yep. that. So like he was defining what bestseller meant exactly. to him in that moment. Yeah. And I think what we're going to talk about is going to be a lot more about, is going to be as much about writing a bestseller as it is like writing your bestseller, writing, writing your bestseller, exactly. writing your book, writing the book you want to write. Yeah, For sure. And I mean, just going back to that print run, I remember when Not Her Daughter was published, we had, I think it was like a 15,000 copy print run, but we went back for four or five printings relatively quickly. And I mean, again, I couldn't share that information for some reason, but it was, it made me feel good that like, yeah, we hadn't taken out like 150,000 copy print run and then would have taken forever to kind of go through that or you don't fulfill that order. And that's not something that an author can control. They don't, they don't decide the print run. That's something that a publisher decides unless you're self-publishing, of course, and then it's kind of print on demand. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, so with that in mind, like defining what bestseller means to you, we're going to go into some just tips and strategies to kind of have that checklist of really creating a best-selling book and what what all of these people and authors who've been there kind of have in common. And the first one's going to sound really basic, but it (laughs) is just put the story first. And, you know, I I think that sounds so simple, but it's something, it's something that I've really watched in my genre where, you know, a debut author, like a suspense author will burst onto the scene with this incredible book. And then their second book is like, so amazing too. And then as they get on that book a year trajectory, it like the writing slips, the story slips, there are holes everywhere because they're so 
it's so churn and burn that you can tell they don't have time to really map out that story. Instead, it's very... Well, and like, they might even be chasing whatever convention... Of course. ...within the genre that they're known for, right? Exactly. I, I think I think that, you know, and I think we might say this about a lot of these points, like, this might seem obvious, but in particular with this, like, you know, Rhea and I both as editors, I think you we all would be surprised how... We're how guilty we are of many of these, even though we think they're obvious. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen it a lot. I see it a lot. Like, you know, Rhea, you were saying it in your genre. I think reading genre fiction that um, uh, I, I think I see this all the time. I think we've got a lot of writers leaning on the convention of like research for like historical novels mm-hmm. or the convention of speculation for like speculative science fiction or uh, world building for, for, you know, sword and sorcery fantasy or whatever it might be. I think we've got a lot, there's a lot of writers leaning more on, on, on that research, <laughs> on that details yeah. than they are on the story. Well, yeah. And as a uh, writer, you can get enamored, um, oh. by your own, you know, your own work or your own descriptions or like, I'm really into verbs. I love verbs and we'll go back and like painstakingly swap out, you know, just feel, saw, look like I want, I want to reach for, you know, stronger words. And then I'm like, yeah, but if your story sucks or if there's holes everywhere, if it's not plausible, you know, people are going to care more about your characters and your story than they are about those like beautiful details that don't really move the story along. Um, and that's, a, that's really challenging for literary fiction writers, I feel like, because, in literary fiction, you do sometimes focus a little bit more on the writing. The story and the plot sometimes move a little bit slower. But I think it's just rule number one to come back to is put the story first. You know, and, and in your own writing, pay attention to the books where the story stays with you and the story really jumps out at you, mm-hmm. whether that is fiction or nonfiction. I mean, the best nonfiction, in my opinion, isn't just prescriptive. It's very narrative in nature. It's telling a story and weaving everything together. It's not just facts or data on a page. And the same thing applies for fiction, where it's not just research or beautiful adjectives. It's it's the story. You have to remember the story long after you finish the last page. Totally. And I think the second point, which I think affects that directly, second point is make a plan. And this is something that we talk I, about. I'm not great at this. <laughs> a lot. This is like, you know, this is the planner versus, versus the pantser. Uh, this is something we talk a lot about at Right Way. This is something we talk a lot about with our clients. Um, this is something that we do. A Right Way actually has a proprietary method. For fiction. Uh, for fiction. For, yes. for fiction. For For fiction. Um, and by plan, we mean an outline. Yep. I mean, you can call it what you want. You can call it a story map. You can call it a blueprint. You can call it a plan. What it is is an outline. And I think a lot of people don't, I think a lot of writers don't like to do this because I think a lot of writers are scared of it. I think yep. they think that it means, I think that they treat the outline too rigidly. I think they're, they, they treat it, um, yeah, they treat it like it's, you know, carved in stone. Um, an outline is 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 a way for you to write to these specific marker, markers. It's it's something that's going to help you keep pushing the trajectory of your story forward. Um, and I think without it, uh, I th- I th- I think it it I think it comes through even in, in yeah. final drafts. I think um, narratives like that have a very meandering quality, and whether you think it works or not. Um, I I guarantee 
that readers, even subconsciously, are not moving to the next page in the same way as they are uh, in when they're reading a book uh, that's sort of like based on a, on, on a map, based on a. a- absolutely, and it's so funny in fiction too how even myself as a writer, I'm sometimes resistant to sit down and do that. But with nonfiction, which again is, you know, 80% of our business at Right Way, I would never allow an author to come to me and just write the nonfiction book. Number one, that's not how it sells. And number two, the book proposal itself, that massive outline that we create is so revealing, so strategic, and it's amazing how clarifying, I mean, that's the word that all the authors we've worked with have said is just, whoa, this this is so clarifying to bring up, you know, ideas that I never even thought about, to visually map it on the page, to come up with the strategy. So when they sit down to write the book, it's so easy because they have such a clearly defined roadmap. And I don't know why what the disconnect is with fiction and I think maybe just because it's more it's more creative it's not as well, prescriptive yes. or from A to Z and I think it, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I uh, I was having a discussion about this with a client yesterday uh, on, uh, on a call and we were discussing the ways like and you and I say this a lot Rhea we always talk about writers particularly fiction writers needing to be adaptable needing to be willing to change something we talk a lot about with our clients and I think we get very scared to change. So I think that we we sit down to write this outline. And like I was saying before, we think that it's written in stone. We think it's gospel. We are, aren't prepared again to change. And so we automatically fear the outline because we think that when we get to the draft, it's going to inhibit yep. our potential for discovery. And that's not what the outline, that's not what the, 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 the theory, theoretical principle of the outline means. Um, Completely. if you, if you pull out the map and you're, you know, you're driving to Vegas, uh, it doesn't mean you can't like veer off and go to Reno. It doesn't mean that you can't drive up to Tahoe. I don't know why I'm using the state of yeah. Nevada as an example, <laughs> but, but it doesn't mean that you can't veer off. And it doesn't mean if something, uh, occurs to you in the moment that you can't follow it. An outline is just a way to help you as you get started to help you write to something yes. and not write around. Something. Well, and I mean, the amazing part uh, about it, I remember, I can't remember what, um, friend of mine, an author, it might've been David Bell, but he was talking about when he sits down to write every single day, if he did not have an outline, if he did not have some sort of roadmap, he would just be blindly kind of like faltering through that period of time. Like his his writing has to be kind of in a condensed window because he's also a teacher. So he has to make sure that when he sits down, he knows what scene he's working on or what chapter or, you know, what plot point, character. I mean, whatever it is, he knows exactly where he's going. And yes, he deviates, I'm sure, all the time like most of us do. But it's so vital to not waste that time and to know where you're going and and to have like a task. and. You know, Nick, Nicholas Sparks, who everyone knows, <laughs> the best-selling author. Is rich author. as hell. Is yes, he rich is. as hell. But he wrote the most famously probably known for The Notebook. But he says, he gives this great advice, and it, it really is fantastic. But it's, he says, everything that I need to know about the novel could be put down in, oh, a page and a half of bullet points. That includes the beginning, the end, the major turning points, a little bit about the characters, time frame, setting, voice, length, some secondary characters, once I have that, I let the rest of the story fill itself in from there. And I think... You see, discovery is still possible. It, it is. And I, I mean, I think like 
to me, I know, I, I think a lot of authors think this way too, but when I think outline, I'm like, oh shit, it's going to be like 15 pages of, totally. you know, like, oh, it's got to be so, no, just, just a page, do a page of bullet points. Yeah. And then. Well, we have, right? Way yes, has, we, we have do. a proprietary methodology that we've cribbed from uh, approaches to outlining scripts and screenplays yep. uh, and, and outlining um, novels and short stories. Uh, story in general, and we put it together into a comprehensive. And I think now is a good opportunity, Ria, for us to like give some of that info away. For sure. Um, so, so what we're gonna do, right? What we're gonna do in this moment is, uh, we're to anybody listening out there. Um, if you go to uh, Apple Podcasts, you go to, and you're listening on the right way uh, to the Right Way Podcast to the episode right now. Comment on the episode, review the episode one or the other, or both, you screenshot that and you send it to us at, at RightWay, uh, at rightwayco.com. We will send you back a free PDF of our RightWay proprietary method and it's for a, fiction. it's an interactive PDF, so you can actually write directly in it, which is awesome. Um, if, you, yep. if you want to, you don't have to do that. But um, it really helps you just map it out in a very cohesive, streamlined way. Um, I've used it before. Joe's used it. It's ex- extremely helpful and we are happy to offer that to you for free. Absolutely. All we want <laughs> is that reviewer comment That's on right. this episode, y'all. That's right. That's all we want. Um, and, and one other little thing that's not on here, but when you're thinking about, you know, creating your book and, and thinking about creating that bestseller, make sure like, yes, you know, you're putting the story first you're making that outline, make sure in that outline that your character, your main character, your protagonist goes through some sort of transformation. They absolutely cannot be the same as when they started. And it's, it's such, again, an obvious tip, but it's one of the most important. If you look at any best-selling novel in the history of time, that character goes through some sort of transformation. And I was actually really looking up like what kinds of characters and orphans, um, <laughs> orphans like <laughs> came up like Harry Potter, thinking about Harry Potter, <laughs> all these, all these different characters over time, but characters who are usually like, yeah, down on their luck, very flawed in some way and, and go through a well, transformation. Well, yo, think about, think about your favorite books. Oh my gosh. Like so as depressing. you write your own, <laughs> think about your favorite books and how and what occurs in the arc of these character of the of the of these character stories I, I mean you look no further than right there your your favorite book the top of the heap i guarantee that there that the main character in that book is not static absolutely i guarantee it i guarantee it so on that note also another fine point for writing a bestseller or writing a book in general is read read Read. I know everyone Get hears to know that. It. Yeah, yeah, Get absolutely. To Get to know the form. And it's not, you know, uh, they, they say all writers are readers and they fucking should be we should be because like that's where the homework is that's where you get better i can't tell you how many screenwriting teachers um and uh, screenwriting professionals who've all said i can skip a class um i can skip a q a i can skip a panel but what i won't skip is sitting down with a stack of screenplays and reading them so I really get to know how to write them. Absolutely. That's, that's how you do I it. I would caution, though, because I, I'm very guilty of this as well. Like, I'm reading um, another a really 
awesome suspense writer, Sherry Lupina. I've read all of her books and I'm actually going back and reading her second book, which I hadn't read. And oh my God, it's so good. And it, her, again, her writing's very sparse, but the story and the plot just fly forward. But then what I immediately start doing, because she's a very different writer than I am, I'm like, ooh, how can I make my work more like this work? And that's not what we're saying. I think it's great to observe other writers, see how they do it, see if you can pluck out some of the the formulas that they use, but have your voice. You cannot change. You shouldn't try to be mimicking another writer out there. there. That's pointless. You know, I know we all like kind of pull from the same well of inspiration and ideas, but, you know, focus on your unique voice because it is yours and glean inspiration from other works, but don't try to, to mimic or copy. I agree. I, I don't try to copy. And I, I think, I think be inspired. I, I, I would say like, I, I don't, I like for myself or, or books I'm reading, I don't mind when it seems as though something was inspired by or, um, or influenced by in some way. But yeah, we're definitely not saying don't go out and don't like, plagiarize. R- <laughs> don't plagiarize. Don't you're not don't you know. Yeah, don't do that yeah. at all. And we, then we do not condone that. And and one of the most important things, I mean, if you want a shot at becoming a best-selling author or a published author even if you're if you're not there yet, finish the fucking book. Like how many of us, 81% of us want to write books Uh, there's only something like 40,000 published writers in the world today, which is ridiculously low. So that's telling you something, either authors aren't finishing their books and they're never submitting them or, you know, the industry is just way too picky, which is also true. But, you know, every single writer definitely doubts themselves when they get, you know, sometimes it's the midpoint of the book. Sometimes it's even the beginning or, two thirds of the way through and they're like, this sucks. I suck. I'm not doing this anymore, but finish the book, get the draft out. It can be B plus work, C minus work, D work, whatever it is. And it's the same thing for our our book proposals. I think so many people want to get it right the first time. And it's, I always call it a brain dump. Like this is just messy. We're getting this down. Then we're going to organize it. And a novel you know, a novel can be a little bit, a little bit messier and, and tougher to kind of navigate through, but just finish the draft. Um, Nothing happens unless you finish it. Definitely. And, and again, it's, it's something that when you finish it, I always suggest really taking like a week or two away and getting some space, process it, and then come back with fresh eyes and don't let other people read it like early, too early. I mean, I think it's very easy to want to share your work and that's fine and that works for some people, but really figure out what you think first about the book. You troubleshoot your issues before you ever bring in like beta reader, beta readers or an editor. Totally, totally, totally a hundred percent. I wanted to take a minute and talk to you about our premium service here at Rightway. It's the service that clients refer people to, they keep coming back again and again for, and that is our nonfiction book proposal creation. Now, I don't know about you, but the word proposal makes me go, ugh, (laughs) it just sounds like such a boring, dry process. However, When you create the nonfiction book proposal, we're really creating a very cohesive strategic roadmap 
for what your book will contain. Now, our book proposals here at Rightway are 60 to 100 pages. They're beautifully edited, proofread, designed. You're getting one-on-one feedback, co-collaboration, co-creation, agent pitching, hand-holding, essentially, for really understanding not only how to create a comprehensive book proposal, but what happens next? What happens after? What happens when you're going to land the agent, land the deal, write the book? So this is really a truly in-depth one-on-one experience that I absolutely love. 80-90% of all of our clients land literary agents and book deals, which usually makes the investment worth it. However, the value that you will have, the knowledge that you will have and how to do this so you never have to hire someone again, that's actually our ultimate goal in addition to getting your book out into the world. Now, we are offering our listeners a very special 10% discount code on this service. The code is WRITE, W-R-I-T-E, 2020, so 2020, because we all know that you just love this year so much and don't want to see it go away. (laughs) But to get that 10%, head on over to rightwayco.com, that's W-R-I-T-E-W-A-Y-C-O.com, Go to our services page and you'll see the nonfiction section there. Click on that. There's an intake form about your idea. You can input the code WRITE2020 to get your 10% off if you choose to engage. So those are kind of like some pretty broad stroke uh, pointers. Um, We have a few more... uh, sort of more specific pointers that we're going to kind of blast through. Um, these are, I, I, I do think, I mean, these are much more specific to like, um, I don't know, writing and plotting. Sure. Um, and I, I, again, um, you know, like w- with any bit of advice, I get a little bit, you know, because I do think writers have like, we have these, I think the writer brain like sort of locks into place on a certain thing sure. and like sometimes can't break out of it. Like we, we get very inflexible and intractable and, and definitely you don't have to like, again, this isn't a recipe. Um, this certainly isn't an equation that will equal something. So just take, take everything, not with a grain of salt, but take everything with, with consideration and, and see what and, and where you can apply them to your own work. For sure. Um, yeah, you go. Oh, no. So, I mean, again, going back to kind of backtracking a little bit to putting the story first, I think, you know, if you want to be a best-selling author, you need to study not only what books are bestsellers, but you got to have a big idea. I mean, Mm. my agent says this all the time. It's, you gotta, and I was talking to my editor about this too, because, you know, I've written four books. Like, I really feel like, I mean, I personally feel like I'm like, these are all like super hooky. And she was like, when you write that big book and have that big idea, you're going to know it. And I don't, you know, maybe I'm not there yet, but I, I think like having a big idea, looking, if you're in a genre, looking at what's already been done and come up with something that is still in line because you've got to sell it, of course, but 
but have that like knockout idea. And again, this can yeah. be very subjective. This is tough. What might be well, big and to also, you is not big to someone. I think it's I think it's important to note that when we say big idea, we don't mean that it takes a very long time to describe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This is uh, people get confused and it happens in the screenwriting world as well. You should be able to sum um, it up in a sentence, right? Sum it up in a sentence. That's that's what that's what big idea means. It means it means a very distinct and briefly and concisely pitchable plot. For, That's what that means. For sure. That's, and, and that hinges on something, something where there was an easily identifiable hook. That's what we mean when we say big idea. Definitely. Um, and that's huge. And I think that, you know, this, this goes back to like that discussion about like focus on the story. Uh, everything should be about the story is one of, one of the first ways to see w- whether or not you're on the right track while you're writing is to do that exercise where you say, can I sum this up in one sentence? Yep. Um, and that means direct applicable to the story. It has nothing to do with the process or, or the atmosphere of the world or the time period or the research you did. It is, only has to do with what the main character is going through to get to achieve their goal. That's all that that's about. So if you can't do that, you got to go back to formula. Yep. Um, next up, uh, this is, I think this is a good one. Uh, build a world. Now, you know, world building obviously is sort of a, 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 a genre, um, uh, a kind of like related oftentimes to genre, but I think this applies to everything. Even if you're just writing straight literary fiction, yep. some kind of coming of age, the world needs to be clear. And, you know, I think this, I think this can be like, I think you can relate this to like the Hemingway method where if you know it, it doesn't. You don't have to write everything, sure. but as long as you know what the world is, the reader is going to get that. Um, but I think it's really important to have a fully fleshed out world, a, a world that supports the story. So I mean, again, yeah, yes. leading with the story. Um, also, you know, writing with your audience in mind. Um, we oh my God. we got we got advice about our podcast actually, and like always having the aspiring writer in mind not necessarily what we find interesting but what the writer needs to know and wants to know and it's the same thing with writing your book i mean you have it was nonfiction, especially 100 percent. you write to that specific reader and we work a lot on audience and figuring out who that is you should be doing the same thing with fiction looking at who's in your genre who's reading your books what they want to see what they complain about go read reviews of yeah. your favorite books and see what they don't like about that world and and not that you can write you don't want to write you know what you think someone else wants to hear but you do need to think about your readers and what what they do like what they don't like what they might want to see and see if you can keep that in mind as you're as you're building your world uh, and I, I, this, this is a advice that applies to theater, to the theater and for everything. Really. Uh, I heard it, I heard it, I heard it once and I, I think that it applies to writing as well. Um, but I remember, uh, I, an acting teacher was, uh, coaching a student through a monologue and the student kept getting tripped up and, um, the acting teacher asked what he was doing and the actor said, I'm trying to feel. Hmm. And the, uh, the acting teacher said, it's not your job to feel. It's your job to make the audience feel. Ooh. 
So oh, that's great it advice. is about you. It is about you, but you're trying to affect the audience. You're trying to communicate to the audience. You're not trying to, you know, and a, a newsflash, an audience isn't everybody. Like you, you, so, you, you know, when you have an audience in mind, I suggest having a very specific audience in mind. Yes. Um, know, know who you're writing to I, and write to them. Yeah. Specific. I, I mean, when we, when we go into nonfiction, it's not like, we've said it before, but it's not like, oh, my, my audience is entrepreneurs. No, it might be, you know, millennial female entrepreneurs on, on the path to running their own companies or, you know, moms suffering from postpartum depression, or you've got to get super specific. And that does include a little bit of research. And I think it's an element that is often skipped over because you get so excited by an idea that you're like, oh my God, everyone's going to read this. Everyone who reads suspense is going to read this, or everyone who needs a business book is going to read this. I was talking to an awesome, amazing client yesterday, and she has so many specific insights um, to women in business and how to advocate for yourself and how to negotiate your own salary. But as she was talking about her ideas, I'm like, heard it before, heard it before, heard it before. And I think we don't often think about our own value proposition, what makes us unique, why our point of view is different. And that applies to nonfiction and fiction, but how you can connect with a reader from from the get go and make them kind of into hopefully a fan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I love that advice from your theater person. That's uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, one it's to great remember. advice. Yeah, for sure. Um, this next point, I'm not like, uh, I think I need some clarification both for myself <laughs> and in general, uh, right. Writing believable characters. I think this goes back to, and I think Rhea, you made a great point when we were talking about building a world, you need to build a world that supports the story. And I have seen this time and time again when I read um, uh, first-timer screenplays or, uh, or, or, or pilots. A lot of times it happens in scripts. I will point out exactly where um, the writer starts to break the, his, his or her own rules, mm-hmm. the rules of, of his or her own world. Right. So if you establish a world, you have to abide by the rules that, that you've got now, now, now granted in, in, in fiction in particular, uh, regarding that there's very few rules, Sure. but once a world has been established, then there are rules. And I think writing characters, uh, the world also has to support its characters. Yep. And, um, I think writing believable characters is more about writing, um, characters that seem human, that are authentic. Um, I had a big conversation with somebody about, um, uh, the house about Shirley Jackson's uh, Haunting of Hill House about how it was really like the first uh, uh, ghost, you know, uh, genre book of its kind where the protagonist seemed less uh, less a stereotype and more human. So I think it's writing it's writing characters that are authentic and that are exist and and play by the rules of the world. Absolutely, and I love that's one of my favorite things is just character development and writing about people that you know, do seem like kind of everyday people. My problem is I often make the world, the world unbelievable or the circumstances unbelievable or like, well, that would never happen in, in real life, which I think it's a very tricky line in the suspense thriller genre. Um, you know, that can kind of get blurred, but yeah, just, just something to keep in mind. Um, because you want your audience to relate to, the character. They might not like them. Um, they might not get them completely, but 
but they want to be able to recognize maybe something <laughs> in them that makes them not seem like this kind of foreign, un- unbelievable entity out there doing these crazy things in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And speaking of characters, one of the biggest uh, things that you can do, and again, you can study this, you can look in books, but picking a point of view. Um, my, so I got advice very early on because I wanted in my second book, I wanted to have four different points of view from four women. And my editor was like, no, uh, preferable is one, you know, it's okay to have two, three is pretty much the max. And we've seen this be broken. Like Leon Moriarty, one of my favorite, you know, women's fiction slash suspense writers in her last book, she had seven points of view, which I think is a little too many. She definitely pulled it off, but really picking a point of view. And that means like figuring out whose story it really is. And that can be very muddled and confusing when you have two to three main characters that are also going to have to go through their own like character arcs and transformations. And, you know, does this story really need that many protagonists and, and that many points of view, or can you get away with one? What are your thoughts on absolutely. that? Absolutely. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think the point of view once again has to serve, you know, all of this is all of this is ultimately in service to the story. Right. So, if your point of view doesn't serve a story, if it's just a sort of convention uh, that you've cooked up or if it's if it seems if it seems false in any way or artificial in any way, uh, get to know it and know it, and because your reader is going to know it, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. they're going to they're going to be able to tell. So. And and I think the I think when I think the story you know this is going to sound fucking stupid but I think the story will tell you I think what like what it needs or how much it needs so completely um, let your yeah. story speak uh, to you <laughs> what is your story I hate shit like that but also I do th- it's well, the same thing with like you don't get- a, uh, an idea for for a like a like a pilot idea you can always sort of tell when an idea is like when it's a pilot or when it's a, a feature or whether it's a short or whether it's a 30 minute uh, or whether it's an hour long sure. you can sort of tell and i think that is it's a muscle that needs to be exercised but i i i think i think you're going to know and i think a lot of times if it seems like you're in the wrong point of view or you you've got too many or whatever or you're misusing one i i think i think you're going to be able to tell completely i agree um Another one, and this is one I talk about all the time, is the plot twist. The element, this this element of like having to have some sort of plot twist. Now, in my genre, a lot of writers, thriller writers, suspense writers, it's like throwing in a plot twist just for the sake of it and just for that element of surprise. It still needs to support the story. Um, I don't usually have like crazy twists and turns, but in my second book, the very last chapter is like the crazy reveal and you know I didn't know if it was going to work or not and uh, luckily I mean from reviews and stuff uh, I think it did for the most part but that was almost like a Hail Mary crazy plot twist at the very very end and while you know you need to look at your genre and and see what's expected kind of quote-unquote expected and what's not um, plot twists are very important. I mean, you want to care, like why you have to constantly ask, like, why does the reader care? Why does the reader care? And that doesn't mean turning, you throwing in twists and turns, but sometimes 
when you look and you study the books that sell the best, there are definite plot twists. Absolutely. Subvert expectation. Yep. Um, keep your audience interested. Um, these last two, I think, sort of uh, go together a little bit as the, like, the final step of like, getting your manuscript ready um, to either submit, publish, uh, or launch. Um, one, embrace the rewrite. Um, yep. I think it's huge. It's something we talk about all the time. We're sort of, a, we're, you know, our editorial services kind of promise that you'll that a rewrite will happen. Um, embrace it. Get ready to do it. Be prepared to change. You have no idea Be what you're going to find. Be prepared to change. Yes. Boom. That's absolutely it. So um, I think, uh, yeah, gird, gird yourself for <laughs> that certainty. Definitely. When you finish the draft. Um, and the second part is edit for clarity. Um, I think there's an there's another part of this bit of advice that you're not. Uh, this is like the la- that last pass proof. Just make sure that everything is clear for the reader, that everything is being understood, that you're communicating the story to the best of your ability uh, because it's what the story and the reader both deserve. Yep. And yeah. I mean, you know, you hear tips all the time, like read your, your work out loud. I mean, oh my God, every time I do that, I'm like, uh, I've said this Jesus. word five times and, or have or, somebody else read it for you. I just like uh-huh. to have you read. Yes, my, absolutely. My yeah. Like find that. someone who, and you can even find someone. I love finding people outside of the genre to make sure, like, mm. especially say if you're like a science fiction writer, fantasy writer, historical fiction, find someone that doesn't typically read that genre and see what they think. Are they interested? Um, does it make sense? Are they confused? And, and it, I mean, again, it really matters when you're wanting to contend with these novels that are selling or, or nonfiction books that are selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies you have to have a tight story. And I know we all get impatient and just want the result or the outcome. But if you're not willing to go through the process and take the time and rewrite your fucking story maybe five times, then, you know, getting to that result, it, it probably isn't going to happen. I mean, sometimes it does. Ooh. If you're a writer who can write like one draft and then like you're a bestseller every time, you know, good for you, but <laughs> and kiss my fucking ass, frankly. But that's not, yeah, that's not the typical process. But again, I think the big takeaway from this is defining number one your goals and what that really means to you. Define what a bestseller is going to mean to you, and if it even matters. And and just again, focusing on the story, letting that story breathe, enjoying the process. To me, having being on the other side of it, the process is where the magic is. It's not totally. in the launching of the book. It's not in the crazy expectations or your sales numbers or the editing well, That's some process. serious self-help shit right there applicable to writing. It's like, like stop thinking about the product. Oh my God. Don't think about don't. the bestseller. No. Just enjoy the journey. It's too much pressure. Or yeah. in writing you know, fucking suffer through the journey because yeah. that's what, that's what's, what's happening. Um, thanks everybody. I know we know that this was, you know, this is a densely packed episode. There's a lot of information. Um, but it's all, we think it's all encouraging and all very applicable to just like being a very conscious and aware writer. Yes. Um, don't forget that if you are listening to this podcast and you review or comment on it, you can screenshot it, send to us, send it to us at rightwayco.com. Um, you can find our contact 
uh, info on the website. Um, and we will send you back. We will reward you with a free PDF of our, our right way, uh, prep, um, proprietary methodology for preparing for writing the fiction manuscript. Um, this is a great outlining tool that you're gonna fucking need. And love. <laughs> Thanks guys. And love. And also you're gonna love it. <laughs> Until next time. Oh,